to the Batmobile. Let's go. Atomic batteries to power. Turbines to speed. Roger. Ready to move out. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, the regular podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. We're broadcasting from the Bat Cave, deep in the ground under a mansion in Wayne, Pennsylvania. I'm here with the team, the Puppet Master, Aaron and Michael, who are to us what Sir George Martin was to Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and as always, my partner in crime, the boy wonder, Todd Pruitt, pastor of Church of the Saviour in Wayne, Pennsylvania. Todd, how's it going? Well, it's going well, Carl. Thank you for the uh, the gracious introduction. I always picture myself as Robin to your Batman. And so you should. Absolutely. <laughs> now, Carl, you are um, quite the connoisseur of all things megachurch. Um, anytime you have a chance to come out here to the campus of Church of the Savior. You seem to have a bit of wonder on your face. I and, do, I do. Yeah, and, uh, and you treat me with the respect that is, you know, requisite, I think, for a, for a pastor of a church um, of this size, and uh, I've always appreciated uh, the deference you give to me because of that. Um, I, I find your, your critique of megachurches actually quite interesting, usually quite accurate. And you wrote a piece for Ref 21 that by the time of this airing is probably a few weeks old, but very relevant. Uh, you're, you're commenting on, 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 a, on a book that uh, you have spent a little time in by Andy Stanley. Now, Andy Stanley is the pastor of North Point Church in the Atlanta, Georgia area. It is a mega church. It's one of the largest churches in the country. Uh, Andy Stanley, a very influential mega church pastor, very influential in the in the modern church growth movement, attracts lots of people to the various conferences, sells lots of books, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, I, I want to just read uh, a quote from uh, Andy's book that's called Deep and Wide, Creating Churches Unchurched People Love to Attend. And in your piece for Ref 21, you include this quote, and I just want to read it. Stanley writes this, people are far more interested in what works than what's true. I hate to burst your bubble, but virtually nobody in your church is on a truth quest, including your spouse. They are on happiness quests. As long as you are dishing out truth with no, here's the difference it will make, tacked on the end, you will be perceived as irrelevant by most of the people in your church, student ministry, or home Bible study. You may be spot on theologically, like the teachers of the law in Jesus' day, but you will not be perceived as one who teaches with authority. Worse, nobody is going to want to listen to you. Now, that may be discouraging, especially the fact that you are one of the few who is actually on a quest for truth. And yes, it is unfortunate that people aren't more like you in that regard, but that's the way it is. It's pointless to resist. If you try, you will end up with a little congregation of truth seekers who consider themselves superior to all the Christians in the community. But at the end of the day, you won't make an iota of difference in this world. And your kids, more than likely 
your kids are going to confuse your church with the church, and once they are out of your house, they probably won't visit the church house. Then one day they will show up in a church like mine and want to get baptized again because they won't be sure it took the first time. And all and I'll be happy to pastor your kids, but I would rather you face the reality of the world we live in and adjust your sails. Culture is like the wind. You can't stop it. You shouldn't spit in it. But if like a good sailor you will adjust your sails, you can harness the winds of culture and take your audience where they need to go. If people are more interested in being happy, then play to that. Jesus did. Now, Carl, that was I, I broke my serious face a couple times because it's almost impossible as I read that. Um, but uh, it's really hard to know where to start. Yeah, it's not very often you hear a couple of extended paragraphs like that, and there isn't a single sentence that one finds right. really one is able to uh, agree with. I think it's problematic on a number of levels. First of all, there is the, I think, an incredibly patronizing attitude that comes through here. Uh, this is a man uh, telling us we're making a big mistake in assuming that culture, which he doesn't define, but culture is just like us, whereas in actual fact, it's, it's just like him. That's very problematic. Uh, secondly, there is the, the, the well-meant, no doubt, but rather hilarious offer to, to pastor our children and possibly, I think, implicitly there to pastor our spouses. Our wives as well. Uh, as well. I'm very grateful for that offer, <laughs> but it strikes me as, uh, uh, as completely bizarre and of a piece with that patronizing uh, attitude. More deeply, at a deeper philosophical or theological level, uh, one would pull up a couple of things. One, the whole notion of happiness. Happiness has to be defined. You can't simply pull happiness out as some kind of abstract quantity here. What you think of as truth is going to shape what you think of as, as happiness, and that simply isn't addressed. And then, of course, there is the uh, complete capitulation to this notion of culture. Culture, of course, is a huge buzzword. Uh, if you want to sell a book, if you want to appear cool, if you want to appear hip, if you want to speak on the right platforms or pulpits, you've got to drop the C word, the culture word, in there somewhere. Uh, it's hard to know exactly what Andy Stanley means by culture. I suspect he, he simply means uh, the way the world is or feels, not... He's not referring to the systems by which a society uh, perpetuates itself or replicates its values transgenerationally. I think he's got a, a more vague concept of culture as, hey, this is just how the world is out there. So a whole variety of problems with this paragraph, uh, these two paragraphs. I think it, it contains a universe of erroneous and problematic thinking. Right. You know, I wonder, as I think about what he says about adjusting our sails, that is the church adjusting its sails to the culture and, and going with it. I wonder if that is the advice he would give to a church, say, in Jackson, Mississippi in 1955. I suspect it wouldn't be. Right. Because I think he's probably a decent enough guy to know that would be bad advice. The right. question, of course, is... Uh, why not? Why shouldn't he right. give that advice? And on the basis of what he says in the book, there is no reason why right. he shouldn't give that advice. I think he would instinctively know that was wrong. But there you, you really put your finger uh, on the issue. The great thing about 
Andy Stanley's world is that he's operating within what we might, in, in a slightly old-fashioned way, call a, a basically decent and civilized world, right. where the kind of problems being thrown up are ones that we may we may not like, but we can we can live with mm-hmm. and still put our heads on our pillows at night and go to sleep. In my response, my article on this, I highlighted the issues of homosexuality and abortion. Right. You know, everybody knows nice, friendly, homosexual people. Don't mind them living next door. They're, I'd rather have a, a gay couple living next door than a crack dealer. You right. know, they're, they're decent, contributing members of the community. Abortion has been in many ways neutralized within society by the kind of language we use about it, the fact that it's kept nice and clean and out of the way and we don't have to face it very often. You put Andy Stanley down in Nazi Germany. You put Andy Stanley down in Kenya among the tribes that practice female circumcision. You transport him back in time and and put him down in Jackson, Mississippi in 1950 or 1955. You're not going to be able to talk in this blithe way about culture culture, however you care to define it, suddenly becomes much more sinister and much more in your face in its unbiblical nature, mm-hmm. if you like. Right. And I was also struck by the very basic error he makes in regard to the experts in the law, the Pharisees. Um, Jesus did not commend the Pharisees because they were theologically astute, theologically correct, quite the opposite. He railed against them because they did not understand their own scriptures. And I I see this error repeated, which he includes here, I see this error repeated a lot, that, that what was wrong with the Pharisees is that they were theologically correct, but they weren't loving. Well, certainly Jesus did confront them with lack of mercy and their, un, their inattention to the weightier things of the law, but he never commended them uh, because they knew their Bible so well. Quite the opposite. Now, why is it that a pastor would make such a very basic error as that? It's breathtaking. I mean, who knows why, why he would make such an error? I, I suspect it's because the culture has so grabbed hold of his imagination that there's so much pragmatism that has come to dominate his way of thinking, that he's not able to to read the Bible in terms of what it plainly teaches relative to the Pharisees. And it's not just the Pharisees, of course, even Jesus' own disciples. When Jesus, after his resurrection, meets a couple of them on the, uh, the Emmaus Road and says, you know, foolish and slow of heart to believe. Uh, it's not that these people are reading the Bible correctly, it's that they're reading the Bible incorrectly. And I think as long as we have it in our minds that somehow the problem that Christ comes to sort out is an unbalanced emphasis on doctrinal orthodoxy as opposed to Christianity as a way of life, you're never going to read the New Testament correctly. And we're always going to be capitulating to the culture in the way that that Andy Stanley is here. You mentioned pragmatism just there, and his, uh, his final two sentences there that you quote in your article for Rough 21 are, as you say, breathtakingly pragmatic. He writes, if people are more interested in being happy, then play to that. Jesus did. Yeah. Well, this is scary, quite frankly. Yeah, and again, it's totally unbiblical. Right. Uh, Jesus makes it very clear that he's come to, to bring chaos right. on the earth, to set uh, families against each other. 
We discussed a few podcasts back uh, Rosaria Champagne Butterfield's book, uh, describing her conversion and her move from being a, a lesbian professor of queer theory to being the the wife of an RPCNA pastor. What is very striking about that book is that the gospel didn't bring happiness to her life, at least not initially. The gospel made a train wreck of right. her personal life. She lost all her friends uh, and a train wreck of her professional life. She was finished in the, 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 the career that she was pursuing up until that point very, very successfully. So I can only imagine if, if I was wanting to witness to somebody like Rosaria Butterfield uh, in her previous incarnation. And trying to find out, well, what makes her happy? Well, being a lesbian presumably made right. her happy. How can I trim my sails and play to that? What does that look like in practical terms? It doesn't look like anything. I have to make that person unhappy in order to show them the need of Christ. Jesus himself says, you know, I, I've not come to, uh, to, to to heal the whole. I've come for those in, in need of a, a, a physician. You, uh, Carl, you preached for me just recently on a Sunday morning, and you, you said a couple of things that I think are hard for a lot of Christians, particularly Western Christians, particularly I would, I would think American Christians. A couple of things you said were hard for us to hear, but that we need to hear. One of the things you said was that uh, the church does not exist to make you happy, and in your uh uh, of course, you're very familiar, uh, very sentimental, sappy, happy style that you have. Um, you said, uh, life is really hard and then you die. And being the pastor of the church, and I'm sitting there in the congregation next to my wife. Of course, my wife is nodding next to me. Um, but I also felt this, not a bad thing, but a very good, reverent hush as you were talking about that. Because it is something that I think many of us in that place, in that moment, we know that. But it is also something very, very different than what a lot of our more prominent evangelicals are willing to say. Because what you are communicating is that Christians unapologetically live on hope. We live, as it were, on tiptoes looking forward to what we do not yet possess, but we will one day possess. And that in a sense, there's, in our culture, in this affluent culture, you can deny that for a while. We typically have enough resources at our disposal to deny that for a while until the shoe drops. And at that point, we either abandon our faith or we have to start learning to live on hope uh, because the kind of stuff we're, we we get from this pastor we've mentioned here, as as well as others, um, endears us to a God who really, really wants to give me everything I want now to make me happy now. And when I get the awful diagnosis, or when my spouse dies, or my child abandons the home, what do I do with this God, whose chief priority for me is to make me happy?
Yeah, yeah. And I remember a few years ago talking to a gentleman, Christian gentleman, who lost his wife. And he said to me, Carl, pray uh, that your wife predeceases you. I remember laughing at the time. I think, gosh, I don't think my wife will be very pleased if she hears that I'm praying that she predeceases me. And his comment to me was, I tell you to pray that because I would not wish the suffering that I have had through my bereavement on anybody that I loved. And it got me thinking at the time that, yes, life does end in tragedy in many ways. I said this at a wedding last year. My, my wife said, you're not going to say that, are you? And I said, I am, and I did. <laughs> and as I was preaching at the wedding, I made the point that every human wedding begins with joy, and every human wedding ends in tragedy. I'm not saying you're divorced. I'm saying if, you, if, you, if you're faithfully married for 50, 60, 70 years, sooner or later, in most cases, one partner will predecease the other, that there will be a, a, a breaking of the bond that is unnatural and tragic. And Christianity, the church, has to face that. This happiness quest thing, if people are on a happiness quest, then they're deceived. Right. And they need to be disabused of that right. deception. Right. And, it, and, it, and, and, and again, we, we have, we've named a name in this program. Uh, just a, a, a brief explanation here. Um, when a man writes a book, particularly a very well-known man among Christians, writes a book that people are going to buy, possibly people in our churches, well, probably not in an OPC church like yours, but uh, this, concern, this is concerning because as pastors, you and I have watch over the souls of men and women who might come across this stuff, and we've got to address it, and we've got to correct public error publicly. Um, When it comes to the issue of pragmatism, um, again, if you don't mind, something you said when you preached for me, which was a great reminder because I'd recently led a a Bible study on this very issue of Jesus's effectiveness as a teacher and where he explains that the reason he teaches in parables is precisely so that he can veil the truth to those who do not have ears to hear it. And, and, and then goes further because he's always having to explain his parables to his closest followers. You'd think at one point Andy Stanley or, or somebody would come alongside Jesus and say, listen, you're not doing a good job with these parables. You keep having to explain them. You're not being practical enough. What does this tell us about Jesus' desire um, to be practical in the way that these pragmatic practitioners uh, interpret uh, practicality. Well, I think there are two things one can say there. First of all is the general one that when Christ uh, speaks in parables in order to show people that they're blind and deaf, he's fulfilling Isaianic prophecy. There's there's definitely a fulfillment aspect to that. I think the other side of it is that Christ is exposing the problem of the human heart, that the problem is ultimately not one of knowledge and communication. The human problem is one of morality. Mm-hmm. Yes, there's a knowledge aspect to that, but it's not that we don't know God because he hasn't been explained clearly to us, that nobody's uh, given us that here's the difference it right. makes point. Right. The point is we don't know God because we do not wish to know him. Right. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. First Corinthians chapter 1, Paul makes the point beautifully that the cross is 
it's an offence to Jews and it's foolishness to Greeks. What Paul is actually saying there is those two cultures predispose people to think about the cross in a certain way. What Paul does not then do is go and say, so we need to somehow contextualize right. the cross to make it comprehensible. Set our sails to that culture. Absolutely not. What Paul does, he says, you know, those people who think it's foolishness and they think it's an offense, they're perishing. Right. It's a function of their morality and their moral status before God. Those who look to the cross, no matter what their culture and see them as the power of God, uh, as the power of God to salvation, they're the people. Right. Who are being saved? Right. I I think about what Paul writes um, in First Corinthians about the fact that that the cross is an aroma of death unto death for those who it's an offensive thing. Now he makes this comment at the beginning of of the section that you quote where he says that uh, people are more interested in what works than they are in what is true. People are not truth seekers. Now on one level, yes, that's accurate. Of course, he. He diminishes just how grave the problem actually is. It's not just that people aren't truth seekers, but as you say, people are morally aligned against the truth. They oppose the truth volitionally. Um, So not only are they blind and deaf to the truth, they are also morally opposed to the truth. And what he is prescribing here is the the response to non-truth seekers is to accept their happiness-seeking and then to play to it, which, of course, is deadly to the souls of men and women. And, uh, and, and Andy Stanley is not the only one that's doing this. He's not, by, not even close to being the only one who is doing this within the church. Um, so, you know, what, what do a couple of pastors in the Philadelphia area, what do pastors in various parts of the country who see this sort of influence in their church, how do they respond and help their people discern this sort of stuff? I think, uh, first of all, regular sound preaching of the Word of God. I was saying the other week in a sermon, I'm, I'm not sure that I can remember more than half a dozen sermons I preached, let alone ones I've listened to. But I think regularly sitting under the Word of God, there is an accumulative Mm-hmm. In fact, one of my elder's wives actually pointed to me a scene in the great movie Matilda where you've got this rather large boy eating a cake and he makes a comment that, you know, he can't remember any individual cake, but you look at him and you know they've had a, a big <laughs> impact on his life. Yeah. Well, it's hard for me to remember a specific cake. This one was mine and it was the most scrumptious cake in the entire world. My mom's is better. It is, is it? How can you be sure unless you have another piece? Sit down, Bob. I think sitting under the Word of God, week in, week out, helps to shape your mind in a way that makes you discerning. So absolutely basic to to pastors is preach the Word of God faithfully. Secondly, keep an eye on what your people are reading. We, you know, you don't police people's reading, but encourage them to read good stuff. I give books away once a month in my church, some for the kids, some for the adults. I don't give away Andy Stanley's books. I give away books that I want my people to read because I want them to have, I, I want them to get something from those books that I think will be useful and helpful for them in, in discerning uh, what is good and, and what is bad out there. So the cultivation of good reading habits in a congregation is absolutely vital too. And thirdly, I think every now and then one has got to name a name. 
There is this sort of culture of, oh, if you haven't sat down and had a coffee with this person, how can you criticise them? Well, to use an Andy Stanley phrase, sorry to burst your bubble on this one, (laughs) but if somebody writes a book, that's a public act. Public act does not require private contact before offering public critique or criticism. I think it's important that those who have a platform and the ability uh, so to do speak out and on occasion name names and point to particular books and say this is what is wrong with this particular book, this particular person, this particular teaching. Yeah. Well, I I couldn't agree more. And uh, I I hope that this has been um, helpful. Uh, We're at a time now where pastors and churches together have to get the truth right um, we have to uh, do something against the, the tide of pragmatism that is sweeping through our pulpits and um, harming our people, to be quite honest. Um, but before uh, we sign out, um, Carl, you being the ultra-intuitive, um, very spiritually-minded uh, person, um, anything on your heart you'd like to share? I was washing the dishes the other day, and, yes. and I think the Lord placed... Uh, a verse into my mind. I think it's particularly applicable to you, Todd, but will maybe ah. be an encouragement to to many of our listeners out there as well. It's uh, Leviticus 13.40. If a man's hair falls out from his head, he is bald. He is clean. And I have to say that, that when I read that verse, I was just greatly encouraged, brother. That's good. That was meat and drink to my soul. <laughs> And in actual fact, the puppet master has told me that we're going to adopt that as the Bible verse for the mortification of spin. And if you visit the mortification of spin website in the interests of crass commercialism, you can actually obtain a mug with the mortification of spin John Owen logo on it and that verse on the back. So for all of you bald and bitter guys out of there, We have the Bible verse for you. Absolutely. And what good news that is. Well, thank you for taking time to listen to The Mortification of Spin. I'm Todd Pruitt, and for Carl Truman, we're so glad you joined us. Please visit the uh, uh, the website of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. If you would like to make a contribution to that important and worthwhile ministry, we would encourage you to do so. And until next time, have a wonderful day. 